Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education and Christian community. I'm David Kern. In this week's episode of Forma, we're proud to bring you an interview that I conducted last week with our good friend, Dr. Christopher Perrin. If you've been in Cersei circles for a while, then you'll recognize Dr. Perrin's name. He has spoken at Cersei conferences for a long time. He's written for our magazine and on our website, and he's even been on our podcast network on a number of occasions. He is the founder and CEO of Classical Academic Press, the board vice president of the Society for Classical Learning and the director of the Alcuin Fellowship of Classical Educators. He's published numerous articles and lectures that are widely used throughout the U.S. and the English-speaking world and is, without a doubt, one of the preeminent experts on classical education right now. And, of course, he's a good friend of ours, something that uh, we're very proud to say. He recently wrote an article for our magazine, our most recent issue of Forma, called The Illuminating Light, How Turning to the Monastics Can Help Our Schools Create and Preserve Culture. And this article is an overview of the important role that the monastic tradition in Western Christianity played in preserving Western culture. In some ways, Dr. Perrin says in the article, monastic culture is Western culture. The monasteries and monastery schools gave rise to our universities and copied and transmitted not just the scriptures and Christian authors like Augustine and Basil, but also the great pagan writers who wrote much that is true and good. They developed and extended the agricultural arts and advanced astronomy. They were at the forefront of many inventions and developments in architecture and medicine. And Western monasteries were not just arcs preserving a past culture, they were husbandmen creating culture. Much of what we call Christendom we owe to the work of monks. I wanted to speak to Dr. Perrin a little bit about this article to get an understanding of why the subject matter mattered to him so much and how he first discovered it and how, where his studies along the way took him. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how an understanding of the monastic tr- tradition in the West can help us in present day education, the way we're educating in our homes and in our schools now in 2017, nearly 2018. So we talked about both of those things. We talked a little bit about the context of these monasteries and what role they played, as well as how they can influence and instruct us now. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Dr. Perrin is, as always, insightful and energetic when talking about this topic. If you've ever heard him, you know how much this means to him. So um, those are the fun kind of conversations to have. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Christopher Perrin about his article, The Illuminating Light, How Turning to the Monastics Can Help Our Schools Create and Preserve Culture. Let's talk a little bit about um, the monastic tradition mm-hmm. and the role that it played in preserving and creating the culture that we consider, you know, old Western culture, um, and what maybe returning to some of its, some of the ideas that drove it um, and sustained it, uh, maybe returning to that, how that could help us in our classroom. So I want to begin by asking you this: 
where did your interest in this topic begin personally? Like, where did this become something that you wanted to spend the amount of time researching and diving in and studying and, you know, all those sorts of, all those sorts of things? Because you've spent a lot of time on this the last few years, as far as I can tell. So mm-hmm. how, did that, how did that become something that was of that much interest to you personally? Oh, well, that's, that's a lovely question. It, it, um, I think there was a stream of thought about the monastic tradition that started flowing when I was in college and seminary, just reading about um, various important figures like Alcuin, say, and the uh-huh. renewal of education um, during the Carolingian Renaissance around 800 AD and thereafter. Mm-hmm. That that always that was kind of a marker for me historically, and it was always curious to know more about Alcuin and Charlemagne and that and that uh, change in culture. Yeah, and then of course any so so many great medieval figures like uh, say Thomas Aquinas or Bonaventure others um, were, were monastics. Uh, so some of these great thinkers, great writers, uh, were in a monastic tradition. And I think almost all of us who took, you know, history 101 in college learned that the monks in the monasteries preserved so much of uh, old Western classical literature, yeah. um, including, including non-Christian or pagan classical literature, the, the, the great literature of, of Greece and Rome yeah. before the time of Christ was preserved by monks. Hmm. And that, that always stayed with me. Just the 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 the, uh, the transmission of this great deposit that was guarded um, by the monks. It was, Chesterton says somewhere, even uh, you know, Christian men guard even pagan things. Hmm. And I think it was in a context where he said, if you want to enjoy paganism again, the best place to go is to a Christian church during Easter, hmm. where there's still festoons of flowers and strings of sausages and lit up trees, which are all pagan practices that right. the church said was good, yeah, themed and preserved. So the monks, I knew that much, you know, yeah. from yeah. back when. But then uh, over the last, uh, you know, really 20 years or so, 15, 20 years of just reading in the history of the classical tradition, again and again, you'd come up against some great figures of thought who um, wrote great things, preserved great things, did great things, and who were monastics. Hmm. And um, it just made me want to know more and read. And then I know um, when one of my trips to Italy, I remember looking, visiting a monastery and actually uh, this Orvieto program that our company is a part of. We live in a monastery, a restored monastery in Orvieto, Italy. And you know, David, that monasteries are built in kind of a rectangular formation around a garden. Right, yeah. And I remember living in a monastery, visiting monasteries, just thinking how perfect an architectural setup it is for a school. Mm. And I remember that being another prompt. Our schools, I was thinking at the moment, architecturally, should be set up like a school. Look what, look what, look what you have with a, with a monastery. You have a garden in the center with all of the classrooms around it facing the garden. So can you imagine being in a class studying to science or Latin or literature or math and being able to look to your right and see a, a garden that's just beckoning you. Yeah. And then what if you saw students walking around the breezeway in conversation with themselves or another teacher or, or in the garden itself having conversation. 
Mm-hmm. You know how I used to longingly look out the window for a recess? Well, you would be able to look towards this garden. Yeah. And, and what, think about what the garden symbolizes. It's so, so much, so much rich suggestion just in a cultivated garden for what yeah. it means to be a human being, what it means to be a student, to grow like a tree, et cetera. Mm. And then you could look out the other set of windows and you'd see the countryside or your community outside. Um, sunlight coming in from schools should be built uh, around a cloister, should be built around a garden. And then I learned, of course, that virtually every monastery had a school. Mm. They, in one sense, were schools. Mm. So that got me going. And I said, I have to know more about the kind of education that was done in monasteries and what's the intersection of education and monastic life. Hmm. So about five years ago, I started reading more directly in the tradition of you know, monastic education. Was there anything that surprised you when you got into that? Like the, I mean, you, cause you had, you, you had a background, you had a, you had a sense, at least a cursory sense of, their role but was there anything that you're as you're reading and researching and you just you came across it in the books and just whoa that's that's either crazy or you know i mean in some senses like maybe the them preserving pagan culture could be surprising in some ways but was there anything like that that kind of blew your mind there were a few moments like that um one was when i discovered that some of the major metaphors for what education could be that had been used by historians of education for centuries. All were living and breathing metaphors in the monastery, or several of them were. The garden being one chief one. Education is like gardening. Like um, being, teachers are like hus- gardeners or husbandsmen, uh, husband, husbandmen, husband. <laughs> they're, they're, we're seeking to cultivate students, cultivate their souls. And that's rich. And you know, there's so many then additional overlaying metaphors in the garden. We have yeah. to pull out the weeds. We have to prune the trees so that they might bear fruit. And you can go on and on with what the garden suggests for what education could be. But then there is the, um, there's the museum motif. Education mm-hmm. is museum, that place where the muses reside, those, uh, those muses that inspire the love of of learning, inspire a love of poetry and of literature and of history and of singing and dance, the, the traditional mythological nine muses. So the museum, wow. like the old Egyptian Alexandrian museum, was considered to be a school, a place of study where scholars would gather and where there was music, musical education, musical education. So this idea of uh, the Greek word musike, Plato's word for uh, education for younger children, well, it's embodied in the monastery as well, because what do you have at the breezeway? You have, you have uh, these beautiful frescoed walls, usually depicting some important theme, often the biblical theme, but sometimes uh, the lives of various uh, saints and, and uh, uh, godly men and women who preceded us. So you have, you're looking at cultivated nature in the garden, in the cloister, but along the breezeway, you turn to your other side and you see cultivated beauty in the form of paintings or frescoes. So I thought that, that blew my mind. You got the, the inner world, the outer world, cultivated nature, cultivated art, um, human beings as artists. Uh, and we're, schools shouldn't the schools be like a museum? Hmm. Where we inspire students 
to study and love the things that are true, good, and beautiful. And then, then I was surprised to see that the refectory itself, where the monks dine, is also another place of beauty and uh, deliberate, intentional fellowship and community um, that also forms our souls and therefore educates us. Hmm. And another great metaphor historians of education have used for education is the table, coming to a table, feasting, a banquet of good things. And that's lived there. And during the meals, often in the you know, one liturgical practice among uh, monks is to read scripture or read literature during um, the meal. So as you're feeding your, your body, your soul's being fed. Plus, there was always one wall that was left to be painted, to have a painted table, and it was usually the Last Supper. Hmm. So you're seeing Christ with his disciples, etc. So the, the Last Supper scene of that, da Vinci, that famous uh, Da Vinci uh, fresco was, was painted for a Dominican monastery in the refectory. Hmm. And the monks directed Da Vinci to do it a particular way, to paint another table. So there was that, you know, there was these overlapping um, metaphors that were there. And that kind of blew me away to see that um, what education was, was, was being symbolized as well as directly embodied in the life of, of a monastery. And then you throw in the, the church, the chapel, or the, sometimes a, a cathedral might even be attached to a monastery. You have worship being present, this idea that everything is to be consecrated to God. So that kind of blew me away. There's some other things, the idea that the monks often talked about um, sp spiritual leisure, um, hmm. that one of the things they sought was communion and union with God, and all of their studies were directed towards that. So the, a, a very proper telos or, or focused end for what education should be, which is the enjoyment of God, the service of God more than anything else, properly aligned education to its, um, you know, its proper end. And, and that gives it a kind of coherence and unity. And therefore, all the subjects that were studied, you know, when grammar was studied, and great literature was studied, and, and some of the other li liberal arts were studied, it, it, it found coherence and unity because of this, um, this clear purpose of, of union and communion with God. Hmm. Um, Benedict called the, the monastery a school for the service of the Lord. Uh, and that just kind of blew me away that, that uh, all the things that we need in our classical Christian schools today uh, seem to be embodied in these monastic schools. Hmm. One other thing, I, I could mention several, David, but I'll just, I'll just mention one more. <laughs> yeah, go on. I was blown away by the far-reaching impact of monastic schools. Because if you had asked me before I had started studying this maybe four or five years ago, how many monasteries had, with the associated schools, had populated Europe, say, by 1350 or 1400? I would have guessed a couple thousand and thought, that's pretty powerful. I had read how the Irish saved civilization, and I knew the Irish had done a good bit. So, but, you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. but I discovered that the, the, the estimated range is twenty to 37,000 wow. monasteries and associated schools. Hmm. So the impact was 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 huge uh, you can scarcely name a thoughtful christian writer theologian or thinker before say 1400 who wasn't educated at a monastery or cathedral school hmm. um 
I think we all probably know, many of us know that the great universities grew out of monasteries as well. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, connections between monasteries, monastery schools, cathedral schools, and the founding of the medieval universities like Oxford. Um, and that's why you find quads at the colleges even today. The quad is uh, the remnant of the old monastery, hmm. the cloister. So there's a few things that surprise me. There's others, but. <laughs> so I hope people will go, you know, if you have, if you haven't read Dr. Perrin's um, article in our magazine yet, that will give you a, you know, a really good background of the history of some of these people from St. Anthony to, you know, uh, to St. Benedict and, and, you know, mm -hmm. um, the, those who worked founding the Jesuit order and things like that. There's, there's lots of names, lots of dates and lots of places that, um, that you reference there. So I hope people will check that out. But one thing that I'm getting the sense is that there are kind of two areas that are particularly helpful to think about these, um, these monastic, this monastic tradition as it relates to us. On the one hand, we can remember um, and recognize and celebrate the way that they preserved culture um, and then created it as well. But let's just say for the sake of conversation, it's preservation. But then there's also the idea um, that we can imitate them in our own schools and homes. That's right. Um, and I know there's other ways we can look at it too, but that seems to be two broad categories that are worth, that are worth contemplating. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to talk about those two areas, uh, mm -hmm. you know, specifically. And we'll, let's start with that preservation idea first. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about it already a little bit just in this interview. but are there um, are there a maybe two or three particular areas that you are most, I'll just say grateful or, or most thankful for things they preserved that, that, that you still see today? Um, you mentioned that they, have they did a lot of preserving, even of pagan literature, not just church, mm -hmm. church traditions and Christian literature, but the pagan literature as well. Mm -hmm. So are there two or three areas like that that you're thankful for what they did? Sure. Yes, I'm... I'm, I'm thankful that uh, they preserved and extended the liberal arts curriculum, hmm. uh, particularly grammar and the study of literature and therefore scriptural study and associated practices, but also uh, some dialectic uh, and mathematics and rhetoric to some lesser degree, but, the, but they preserved the liberal arts uh, curriculum. Uh, and they, 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 uh, they left for us this idea of, of what we might call today close reading or contemplative reading and memorization and contemplation itself as an important way that we come to know the things that are good, true, and beautiful. Hmm. Uh, they talked a lot about the importance of spiritual leisure, of, of a, a slow contemplative reading and feasting on scripture and anything that was true and good. They, they had this uh, various kinds of maxims, you know, like try everything and keep what is good. So hmm. that's why we have, that's why they preserved Aristotle and, and other uh, pagan writers, because they, they saw some things that were true, good and beautiful in Aristotle. And they thought that there was a benefit and a help to what, what Christians needed to do. So they saw, they preserved this idea that Christian thought, and revelation was in continuity with much of what preceded it. Hmm. And that Christianity therefore is kind of the 
the fulfillment for which those who lived before Christ were longing for. And of course, we know that a lot of ancient Christians who became Christians, uh, Justin Martyr comes to mind, thought that Christ was the fulfillment of what they were longing for as pagan thinkers. Um, Justin Martyr called Christianity the true, the, the true, the absolute philosophy, the fulfillment of what he was doing as a philosopher before he was a Christian. And the, the monks understood that. And while they loved Christ and the revelation of the incarnation of Christ, that was primary, they saw that it was redeeming everything that came before. That's really important today. Uh, we need to understand that deeply today as we interact with secular people all around us. It, we don't have to always engage in a kind of combative, um, polarized debate with people who aren't Christians. There's a, there are a number of things in which uh, there's, there is some common ground that we need to understand. And uh, we need to build bridges to our friends who are outside of the church rather than constantly um, you know, attacking or, or, or um, you know, taking up a, a combative posture all the time. There is a place for combat. Yeah, there is a, a place for true debate, and there's a place for separation too. Anyway, they leave that legacy that there's a place, an important place as well, for continuity and respect and appreciation for truth that even has come before Christ, even though He's the fulfillment, He is the truth and brings it all together. So the curriculum of the liberal arts, the continuity with a thought that's gone before it, the ability to contemplate and and be at leisure. And then I would cite as well the importance of friendship and fellowship or community as a way that we learn. Hmm. Uh, the monks understood that. The, you know, the word monk comes from the Greek word monos, which means alone. But, the, but that, that's because the original hermits did live alone. But monks came to actually live in fellowship, the vast majority of them, uh, like in the Benedictine tradition. Uh, they live in, in, in fraternal fellowship with one another. Hmm. And they understood the importance of growing together and benefiting from one another's gifts and abilities and capacities. Hmm. So those, those come to mind. Well, those also kind of are a good bridge into ways that we can imitate because um, in the conclusion of your article, you say it is true that schools and homeschools are not and cannot be monasteries. We can, however, become like monasteries. Just mm -hmm. as every home can resemble a little church, every homeschool can resemble a monastery. Mm -hmm. In a time in which we have adopted secular models for teaching and learning that have proved ruinous, it may be time to consult this rich liturgical model for teaching and learning, what we can call a neo-monastic model of liturgical learning. Mm -hmm. It's not just an option, it's a proven ideal that is becoming an imperative. I skipped around a little bit there, but, <clears throat> well, I skipped a sentence or two. <laughs> um, but how do you see, you mentioned that, that homes could be, um, uh, could, could, adopt, could consult the rich liturgical model for teaching and learning. How do you see that being able to work out in the home? And I, I suspect that you may have to take us back a little bit to how the monastics, you know, live that out themselves. But how do you see that happening? And can you give some advice on, a, on maybe some specific practical advice on how people can do that in, in our schools and in our homes? Yeah. You know, you're, you're reminding me of another prompt that occurred to get me going in this direction maybe five or six years ago. It's uh, Jamie Smith's book, Desiring the Kingdom. Hmm. Yeah. Because he talks about that book, about the importance of liturgical formation, about how practices, embodied practices form our souls 
and cultivate the desires that we have for human flourishing or for a one kingdom or another. Mm-hmm. And the, what Christians ought to do and what the church ought to do is, of course, adopt liturgies or practices that cultivate our love for the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we've inherited some other liturgies, liturgies, what Jamie Smith calls in that book, secular liturgies that also form our souls, but in a different direction. Hmm. And in other words, directions that might be contrary to the kingdom of God. And so if you look at secular education, there are a number of practices that we've all become well acquainted with that we are so patterned by that we are, beca- we are unconscious of them. So when homeschoolers or private classical Christian educators and parents turn to do education, guess what we often do? That's what practices we often employ. The secularized educational liturgies that we've all grown up with. The buzzing bell. Because they're comfortable? Comfortable because it's what we know. So we do what we know. Yeah. And I think we probably underestimate the power of, say, 20 years of patterning in those kinds of schools. Hmm. So we take out our red pen, and we are very happy to take, you know, an – a little quiz that has seven answers on it and convert it very quickly with a red pen to a 100 point scale or the ABCD scale and hand that back to kids. We don't even think about that. Um, But that assessment practice is one that we've inherited. It's not one the monks used. Yeah, it's new. Yes, it's new, relatively speaking, 125. Relative to the monks. (laughs) Yeah, enough that it's all we know. (laughs) Right, yeah. Right. So... That's just worth saying, too, that we've all, we, there are practices that we employ that we're not even aware of. And what I love about studying the monastic practices is that they're different. And so at least it makes me become conscious and aware of the very practices that I naturally employ. Mm-hmm. And it makes me question them. Mm-hmm. So that's a powerful move just to become aware of what I'm doing. Once that happens, I can begin to ask, why do I do what I do? And should I do what I do? And what might change? So I recommend a kind of neo-monastic, neo-monastic approach because I, I don't think we have to go back and do just what they were doing, say, 800 years ago. We don't need to put our kids in conf- you know, solitary confinement, essentially. <laughs> Everyone in a cell and yeah. our buildings should all be made out of stone. <laughs> there literally must be a garden in the middle of each, each uh, school, although I think that could probably be a good practice. Yeah, that last one might work. <laughs> I visited a school, by the way, uh, in the Midwest, been built recently, beautiful school, and the architect said, if you build the school this way, it's going to grow your enrollment. And it was just like a monastery with the, oh. the rooms all around, rectangular, surrounding the center of the school. Beautifully done. But guess what was in the center? Uh, a gym? Exactly. <laughs> Not a garden, <laughs> but a gym. <laughs> because that's what we really value. That's what centers us. And, so did, and they, not, did all the classrooms actually look down on the gym? <laughs> yeah. Really? Very, well, into the hallway that was, that was right by the gym. Right. right. Through into the gym where the doors were. At any rate, uh, I think... The liturgical practices, the embodied practices that form us are really important to think about. And the study of monasticism and monastic education gets you thinking about what we do with our bodies. And that, yeah. I think, is helpful no matter what Christian tradition you come from. Because the, because the monks 
took serious stock of the way their the use of their bodies what it meant spiritually they did they they were intentional about it and of course it developed over hundreds of years mm-hmm. and benedict for example wrote his benedictine rule as a way of uh describing how you could live in community and by the way his rule is very flexible still used today um it wasn't highly specific but it gave enough directives and enough principles that it helped people and still does uh to figure out how they might live in community well and what and what practices might actually create and foster community So I think a lot of educators, homeschool educators, as well as school educators, would be wise to read the Benedictine rule with a little pen out asking the question, how might this apply to what I do in my homeschooling co-op or my homeschool or my school? It could be enlightening. And there are schools that are beginning to do this, to be sure. Um, so the, some of the specific practices, there, there are a number of them, a number of liturgies. Here, here's one that I think we've talked about before, David, but it's worth mentioning for those who are listening. Uh, commonplacing or using what the monks called a flora legium, uh, a book of flowers, um, which in, in an back age... Back to the garden we, metaphor. Yeah, back to the garden metaphor. That's, isn't that interesting? Uh, gathering flowers that you might, as it were, press between the pages of your book, but with ink. Hmm. And that was a metaphor itself for what should be pressed on the tablet of your own heart. You need to put beautiful things into your heart where they would reside forever so that you could contemplate them there at any time and so that they could take root and bloom within your own heart so that you could become like that tree that we read about in Psalm 1. So what these monks would do is they would take their commonplace book or their florilegium with them wherever they were going to record uh, paragraphs and passages from other books that they might borrow from monks because books weren't published yeah. on, on a printing press. They were handwritten. Yeah. So if someone came and visited your, your monastery and had a copy of Augustine's Confessions, you might want to borrow it for the night and copy onto your own commonplace book the passages that you love most, and you probably memorize a lot of it. Um, we, that's a wonderful practice. And so I know of classical schools and homeschools today that are doing this and experiencing the blessing of commonplacing. It's not a diary. The students are to record anything they come across that they love, that's true, good, or beautiful, and they memorize what's, what's in those books because they're, they see the value of actually in, you know, embodying the great literature that they read in this deep way. Mm-hmm. And that, of course is connected to this ideal of contemplation. Slow digestion and reflection to permanently possess the truth, goodness, and beauty that's before us. You can't do that just by cramming and, and testing. Um, and the monks engaged in regular contemplation. They, they came and revisited the most important things again and again. So in their liturgies, praying you know seven or eight times a day, they would read through um, you know, the New Testament, uh, or all of the Psalms, one, once uh, a month. Go, they're going through the Psalms, or once, well, once a week, they're going through the Psalms. <laughs> and the entire Bible, several times, and the New Testament, several times, until the Psalms were memorized in about two years, just by regular, not with even trying to do it, just by regularly chanting and <laughs> singing the Psalms 
they came to possess those psalms in that deep way. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned this because in, at the end of October, uh, I went d- up to Kentucky and interviewed Wendell Berry hmm. for a uh, interview for our, the next issue of our magazine. And <clears throat> uh, I was just uh, editing that transcription. Mm-hmm. And we were, it was like 16,000 words, the transcription or something. Yeah. Um, so I'm editing it and I'm, I'm rereading parts of it where he's talking about how one of, uh, I was there with somebody who asked him about technology in the classroom. And he said that aside from any benefits or, you know, negative effects that it has in terms of actually the presentation of information and things like that, what it's doing is it's making our, our education less physical. Um, and he was talking about how he really values his physical life and the way he, he said something like, I want, you know, it, it's important to me that I live my actual physical life, my body's life and mm. die my body's death. And he talked about that. And then he talked about how writing for him is a very physical thing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't use a computer or a typewriter. He handwrites, he handwrites it and then he speaks the words aloud and he uses it all so he can, he can feel them come, you know, being formed on his tongue, being uttered. Mm-hmm. And he can hear what they sound like and all that kind of stuff. Um, so he, t- he, then he talked about how when you, you have these, when you read the great works of the West, Western canon, you spend your life with them. You at what, just when you need them, they seem to randomly mysteriously appear. He said it's one of the most amazing things about his life is that he'll be feeling some kind of anxiety or doubt or something like that, or he'll be up late at night worrying about something. And then he actually used the, um, he said that the passage from the gospels where it talks about the angels showing up to the shepherds Hmm. a few days before we'd been there with him, that passage had come to him in the middle of the night. He didn't even realize that he had had it memorized Hmm. but because he had spent time with it and he had kind of, I don't know if he used the word reveled, but that's essentially the, the, the mm-hmm. idea that he was talking about. He'd reveled in that language and those beautiful, those beautiful words. They came to him mysteriously, supernaturally in a way, um, when he needed them. And mm-hmm. that allowing, you know, par- participating physically in the world, in, that, in the world itself and in the world of the arts, he, he was saying is, is a mysterious and deeply spiritual activity. And it seems like that's something like what the monks were valuing in a similar yeah. way to what Wendell Berry is valuing. Yes. I think he's describing a, 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 a biblical and ancient practice that never grows old and never ceases to bless humans who practice it because it's somehow connected to who we are as human beings, that we are made with bodies. We are the intersection or the, you know, this harmony, this union of the material and the immaterial. Hmm. And, and, Yes, we. You reminded me of the passage. I think it's in Job that God God gives us songs in the night, and uh, the, in Psalm one nineteen, you know, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. A scripture comes back to us, and so does anything that's great, anything that's true, good, or beautiful that we have we have we have contemplated and possessed at some point in our life. It's there, and will be summoned up hmm. as it's needed. And it, be, it makes us wise. I think, you know, when you ask if one of the great ends of education, as we know, is, is, is wisdom. How, how does someone become wise? And how do you get wise? What short course do I take to get wise? There is none. Yeah. It's an ongoing life of really cultivating, cultivating 
the, the things that are true, good, and beautiful and contemplating them, that slowly changes us such that our comprehension of all things and our ability to see the harmony in things and to know the right thing to do at the right time and to speak a timely word, that's wisdom. And that comes slowly as, as, we, as we engage in these kinds of practices. So, that's so why don't we do those in our schools? You know, why don't we yeah. begin doing those? So that's where the liturgies, the liturgies are that life, that path that direct us towards wisdom is what you're saying. Yeah. And we mentioned commonplace meditation, but let's talk about a couple others. Yeah, Um, please. Deep fellowship in small groups. Uh, This makes me think about smaller schools rather than the big, huge ones. If you look at the way so many of the great saints of the past were were educated, it, it, it wasn't in classes, graduating classes of 2000. I'd much like rather see um, a lot of small schools where you can actually be friends and fellows with your yeah. classmates and your teachers than fewer big, huge, consolidated high schools and universities like we have. I think there's a place for the big uni- research universities. There's a place for some big projects but by and large i think the the model of small schools and lots of them is worth contemplating was that um, sorry go ahead no go ahead no you go was that was that the way the the monastic tra- tradition operated like when saint benedict started what he started 12 13 monasteries something like well that? yeah was the vision for them to be small and then when they grew spin off essentially that's right um the rule of 12, following the apostles, of course. Um, hmm. it, uh, there's been, of course, a lot of thought about this and writing about this over the centuries. Why did Jesus choose 12 disciples and so forth? Uh, we know even by from sociologists, they tell us that a human being has limits as to how many other human beings he or she can really be friends with, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, can you have 500 friends, really? No, on Facebook, maybe. But can you have 500 relationships? Yeah. yeah. Space and time, our embodiment as creatures in this cosmos, limit us. Uh, we cannot, our brains and our bodies cannot maintain a thousand meaningful friendships. Hmm. So, um, how big should our churches be? How big should, um, and by the way, the sociologists say, the, what you can know about 150 people, which is the size, traditionally speaking, they think the size of a clan. So about 150 people you can stake, keep tabs with and have a relationship with. Hmm. So I think, I think that's an argument for small, or at least by, by, by common uh, contemporary standards, small being a virtue. Um, so I'd much rather see acknowledging our limits. Yeah, right. And, and, and acknowledging what really educates best. Right. You know how many undergraduates there are at Princeton? Not off the top of my head right now. They're, they're, you might think, well, a school like that would have 20,000, but they have 4,000. So sometimes even the schools that we consider to be, you know, competitive, selective and so forth, they're small, smaller, surprisingly small given uh, contemporary standards. Uh, we all know that we need mentors and good teachers and relationships and so forth. So I think um, following the rule of 12, uh, 
what does that mean? Well, Benedict would, would, would say after you've gotten to 12 monks, got to, gotten to 24, you could send 12 out to start another. He thought it, you needed 12 to be a foundation. Some, some writers think that when, when, math, when, when certain strains of monasticism began to corrupt, it was because of their success, because some of these monasteries became so successful that they kind of turned into business enterprises, mm-hmm. and then they lost their spiritual fervor. So you maybe can make a case. I, I don't know enough about it to say this is definitively true, but maybe getting too big actually can become a threat, uh, and a temptation to lose some of the uh, important ideals that we want to, to maintain. I also well, think... Seems- the, the, keep going. Well, I was just going to say, it seems as if if you're going to, if you're going to stay small, mm-hmm. then you have to keep it simple. Because if you get bigger, you can get... I mean, I suspect even in a monastery, let alone a school, the bigger you got, the more benefactors you would have, the more mm-hmm. you sell your ale to the to more people or whatever it is, mm-hmm. the more the more you'd be able to do if you have more people around. So <clears throat> it being small means you have to keep it somewhat simple, right? Is that was was that the way they viewed it? I think the this this the smallness required maybe some elegance and some focus because you can't do everything. So you have to choose what you're going to do. Just like a school uh, might not be able to offer water polo if it's a smaller school, right? Right. Uh, So we're not going to know. We're not going to have a water polo team ever here. (laughs) Don't even dream about it. But we will have a cross-country team. (laughs) Um, So you you do limited resources requires you to make those kind of choices to be sure. But there's another sense in which smallness also creates some appropriate variety. For example, if you're at a small school, it's possible for you to be on a cross-country team, sing in the choir, be on the debate team, and get a, a part in the play. Hmm. Whereas at larger schools, you, you know, you're probably not going to make uh, qualify to do all of those things because um, there's only so many people who can be on the cross country team yeah. or the volleyball team or only so many parts in the play. Yeah. So people who are in smaller schools experience life a little more holistically. And you know, the reality is 99% of anybody who goes to high school is not going to become a professional football player, soccer player, <laughs> basketball player, or actor yeah. or a world-class runner. So wouldn't it be great if you could have the, the ability though, to know what it's like to participate in all of those activities and be, uh, you know, be cultivated and humanized by, by doing them. So you see, there's an advantage that comes that to being small, that also creates some variety, at least from the student's experience. Did the, did the monasteries try to create that kind of a environment where the, the monks could do multiple things? Yes. The, there was some things that all the monks did in common. You know, they all would participate in the hours of prayer, some seven hours of prayer. And that would involve, say, three to four hours in a 24-hour period of simply praying and worshiping, singing. Uh, they would also engage in, in, in work and prayer uh, in, 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 a, in a particular field. They would all study scripture some three or four hours a day. They would be engaged, and of course I'm generalizing, but they would be studying scripture. Everyone would know scripture. And in order to know scripture well, you had to study grammar. So there was a good study of grammar and there was a good study of 
of just classic literature, and they saw a kind of double inheritance. This is the way one Benedictine scholar puts it. There was a double inheritance that the monks enjoyed, which was classic literature and scripture, and a kind of natural revelation, general revelation kind of motif. And everybody would study that and enjoy that. But here's something that was remarkable. In these small monasteries, the abbot would get to know these monks pretty well and could see how God was leading in their lives and could properly um, position and train and provide for the cultivation of the gifts, the various gifts that he actually observed before him. Hmm. So you can bet that someone like Aquinas was seen to have great scholarly gifts and then was put on a, a kind of pathway where he could develop those gifts. And yeah. another monk might not have that, but it might be remarkably gifted with his hands and be finding himself working in the blacksmith shop and doing some remarkable work in blacksmithing and so forth. So there was an ability to kind of uh, have the body be its uh, multi-form body. Hmm and have each part do its work well hmm. without the expectation that everyone had to do just the exact same thing. Although there was a common curriculum for everyone with this, you know, uh, um, up to some differentiation. Hmm. How do you see that? Um, do, do you think that kind of model can be played out in our school? And we're running out of time here, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. Yeah, sure. Do you, do you, um, do you think that that is, um, applicable in our homes and our schools? I mean, maybe more so in homeschools where you can, the parents can really be able to focus in. Whereas at a school, if I'm teaching, if I'm teaching English, maybe I teach four units of English to the high schoolers mm -hmm. and I have them each for an hour and a half, three times a week or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I've got them during that time, but I can still only get to know those 12 or 15 kids or 20 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So much. I can begin over time, over over a number of years, I can get to know certain of them better than others and begin to ascertain what they're good at, where their gifts are and things like that. Mm -hmm. But even if I'm the headmaster and I'm not in the classroom all the time, I don't know them as well as probably an abbot at a monastery would be. Right. So how, do you, how can that be lived out or, or done in our, in our schools, in our homes? Well, uh, great question. I think, first of all, just by keeping our schools and our homeschooling communities intimate and small, we will help this cause a great deal. Because over time, someone like you, if you were teaching at a school or a co-op, would be able to get to know students personally mm -hmm. and be able to mentor and guide in some distinct and well-informed ways. Whereas if you have 30 students and they're always different students and you only have them for a semester or a year and they're gone and you don't really see them again, which happens in a, a lot of our large schools, yeah. Kids become someone anonymous and they're just moving through a kind of tracks. Yeah. It becomes about yeah. the material, not the classroom. Yeah. Which the material matters, but. Right. So, so you're going to have the challenge just being uh, the larger you are. And of course we're getting to things like uh, the ratio of teacher to students. Mm -hmm. and, um, but the ratio is important, but the relationship is even more important. And we need to find ways of having our teachers um, providing for our teachers to have true, meaningful, and appropriate friendship relationships, teachers to students over time. And this means we need to break down, in my opinion, a little bit of our hyper-specialization where, you mm -hmm. know, the math teacher does nothing but math 
and and the math teacher himself does not know how to integrate math with literature, with language, with history, because of the way we've been trained. So as we slowly get better at training our teachers, the teachers themselves will be well-integrated liberal artists who can relate these various disciplines together in any course that they teach. Therefore, they can teach vari- uh, they can teach um, fewer students multiple disciplines, and that could be really helpful. Hmm. So I think this is a it's a matter of proportion and degree. We can't uh, completely go to one extreme to the extreme of one to one tutorials, but we should be moving in that direction if we can. Hmm. Smaller groups, smaller teachers, real relationships, removing uh, distractions from our students, studying fewer subjects, fewer arts, and fewer texts, but going much deeper with them. Hmm. That would be aligned with the monastic model. So some of those apply universally across homeschoolers and schools and co-ops and things like that. But we've. I, w- I wonder if my last question, if you could address maybe a couple pieces of, of advice you could give to the homeschooling uh, listeners, um, mm-hmm. ways that the uh, some of these principles can be applied specifically to a homeschool setting where you certainly have more freedom, mm-hmm. um, but you also may, might be dealing with a much wider variety of ages, right. uh, and a, you know you're not doing it professionally, so you know you don't have this. You don't necessarily have time blocked out for you the same way. Um, that's a, there's a pros and cons of that, obviously, but sometimes the stresses, the demands of homeschooling are very different. You know, your, your first grader needs something different than your ninth grader. Um, and then the dishes are piling up and you've got company coming and you've got dentist appointments and, you know, the different things that flow into that. So I wonder if you have any specific advice for, for that kind of a situation here. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, the things that come to mind are to to go deeper with fewer things. The the multum non multa approach of of much not many. It's better to read a few books and really deeply engage them and possess them and love them than to simply fall into that trap, which means we cover material. We need to engage and discover, not simply check boxes off. I think people are coming to realize that, but that's part of the monastic model as well. I think we should also think through how we embody our homeschools. Homeschools are often drab. Frankly, they're often just the kitchen table and a clutter. Mm -hmm. And they're often done kind of, again, an imitation of secular education with anxiety and frenzy and um, a little bit of disorder uh, they're not. They're not always. Our homeschools are not always serene, uh, beautiful, deliberate, intentional, mm. quiet, relaxed, appropriately celebratory. They're often a kind of a mishmash, and of course, sometimes it has to be when you're when you've got yeah. you know, three or four or five kids. That's okay. But the, 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 the two-year-old who's climbing all over everything and screaming exactly. and falling. But, and, but yeah. even the two-year-old will love it when you're playing beautiful music at the beginning of the day for 10 or 15 minutes before education even starts. Mm. Why not play some beautiful uh, music out of the Christian tradition for 15 minutes before class begins? Again, think about church as a, a model, as a, a source of what, your educational embodiments and rhythms and practices should be. 
these the ecclesial tradition should be the primary source for our embodied practices in a homeschool. This means we should start with music and prayer. We should probably be reciting a song, maybe one that we've memorized, or great poetry. We should be um, lighting candles as we begin the study of scripture. We should, we should have some embodiments. Uh, in the, what do we do with our bodies during these times? Our kids just, there's a time for you to be reading to your children and they're sprawled all over the living room. Yeah. There's another time where they're all standing up as, as they sing and pray, um, asking God to enlighten their hearts and give them wisdom and open up wonderful things from God's law and so forth. Yeah, even if it's uh, two minutes. For a young yes. child, yeah, right. And prayers can be memorized. Uh, uh, St. Thomas's prayer, Ante Studium, which he prayed before he would begin studies. There's, there's traditions of prayers for the students. Hmm. Why not memorize those? Um, why not? Um, Cindy Rollins uh, uh, is popularized this idea of what she calls morning time. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. Yeah, just a liturgy of beginning the day, taking your best time when the kids are starting the day in the morning and they're fresh after they've had some breakfast, what do you want to do with your very best time? Review math homework. Well, there's a place for reviewing math homework, but she would say your morning time ought to be dedicated to reading something beautiful and remarkable. Let the kids relax and listen when they're younger and then they can begin to co-read with you, but read to them great literature. Mm-hmm. So that they love the written word, they love the text. It's a, it's a wonderful idea. It's a great liturgy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would um, I would think my, my my parting word of advice would be, think deeply about what you do with your five senses all day long. Make your homeschool like a museum. Make your homeschool like a garden. Make your homeschool like a banquet where you feast with beautiful things. Make your home like a place of worship. Make it that museum. Mm. And if you take those metaphors and you just think about the four walls of your home deeply and you pray about it for a week, you will start to beautify your walls, beautify this sonic environment. You will beautify what you do with your bodies. You will begin to to create a new ways of inspiring and creating um, a love of the lovely. Mm. If, if you really just take those metaphors that come from the monastery and and overlay them across your home. Hmm. That's what I, think I would. Like in those small habits too, as we show that we value, that we as the parents and teachers value those, we'll call them small things, but those, you know, beauty in the small things, that those are habits that our children are going to pick up. You know, they're going to begin to to notice that as they're, when they're two, they're three years old, let alone when they're 12, 13. You're absolutely right, David. Imagine them coming to uh, the kitchen table for to begin mathematics what should that look like if you could if you could be if you could idealize this a bit they're going to two or three of your kids are going to sit down at the at the kitchen table the dining room table and they're going to do mathematics what could we do what should the, what should be on the table what should they be hearing before they begin um what what how 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 do they sit what chairs do they have um where are their books displayed? Um, there's a number, number of things that we think are kind of mundane can be changed. Uh, the liturgy of welcoming them to the study of mathematics. Do we simply throw the books on the table and say, guys, you're Get already five minutes late. It's time for math. 
<laughs> you got to get your math done. Or could we have a liturgy just the way we do at church where you know, you're welcomed into something? Hmm. There'd be a transition from one thing to another that would be appropriate for a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old who's going to be studying mathematics. Could there be a prayer where we thank God for numbers and the order of things numerically, et cetera? In some ways, it seems like maybe we spend so much time as parents and teachers trying to figure out exactly what material to get through and making sure we understand exactly what to teach and having our lesson plans laid out. But we don't spend enough time thinking about, as you said, you know, how are we getting from one thing to it, to each other? How are we, how are we, what are our interactions looking like with the kids as we present that material? Um, the, you know, I don't want to use, I mean, this word has a negative connotation sometimes, I suppose, but like the rhetoric of the way we move from one thing to another, the way we present it, not just, this is a bunch of information to know, but these are things that you should love. I'm right with you. You know, the idea of a, we didn't talk about it, nor can we now, but the idea of <laughs> Part slowly, two. slowly arrestful learning is yeah. what we've been talking about. It just haven't used the word scolé. But I know of homeschooling families and schools that are, they're, they're having scolé lunches, for example. There's a time to just throw peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in front of our kids and say, guys, this is your lunch wolf it down because we've got to get to the grocery store here in a moment before dad gets home. But there's also a time for preparing a meal mm-hmm. and welcoming them into a meal that is, has a liturgy, as you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I think if, if homeschooling parents in particular think deeply about implementing this ideal of leisurely learning, contemplative learning, liturgical formation in the homeschool, uh, embodied practices that uh, that cultivate a desire for the things that are lovely and true and good and beautiful. If we just start asking those questions and praying about them and talking about them with our friends, we will start making some really positive changes and transform our homeschools. Hmm. Well, as usual, we've got a little over. <laughs> so thank you for joining me. Um, thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for sharing some of your experience and your wisdom with us. You're welcome, David. Thank you for inviting me again. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.